You are listening to National Security Law Today. In a rambling speech on February 21st, Vladimir Putin outlined a list of historical grievances against the West and the United States in particular. He went on to describe Ukrainian government as being akin to the Nazi regime. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a former actor and star of the Netflix series Servant of the People, stayed in his country to respond to the sudden onslaught from Russia. What was Putin thinking? Why did he do it now? And what is his end game? This is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, and our podcast today is about the mind of Vladimir Putin. My guest is Rob Dannenberg, who has insight into Putin from his many years in the CIA, including his service twice as the station chief in Moscow. Rob, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, Alyssa, for having me again. It is important for me to have my own little disclaimer for law audience. They'll understand this. While it's true that I spent just uh, shy of 25 years in central intelligence agencies, all of it was as a clandestine operative until my very last day as a CIA employee. But I don't betray any trust by revealing that. I petitioned for and received permission from the agency to disclose my background. I even have a cleared CIA resume. And when I speak or write, I'm obliged to, particularly when I write, uh, to clear my remarks in advance with the agency. That doesn't mean I can't express my opinion and be as frank as I want to be. They're just screening it for classified information. But, you know, we're, we're really, I think, at least at inflection point in history and a very important moment. Vladimir Putin, who's been the president of the Russian Federation on and off, mostly on, for the last 21 years has been carefully preparing for the moment of confrontation with the West that he has seemingly sought for those 21 years, if not before. I think he gave the world a notice of his intent at his uh, remarks at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where for the first time he publicly and passionately pointed out, in his view, the broken promises that had been made by the West to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, principally centering around alleged promises of no eastward expansion of NATO. But also Putin then went on to complain about the inadequacy of the U.S.-led unipolar world. And since that time, Munich 2007, he lays out these grievances in a quite astonishing speech, but it fast follows it by withdrawing Russia from the Conventional Forces in Europe Agreement, August of 2008, just under a year after his speech. He invades the Republic of Georgia very quickly to the uh, annexation then of Crimea in March of 2014 followed by supporting insurrectionist movements in the Don Basin, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and Russia's military intervention in Syria in 2015, and the intervention of their mercenaries in Libya and elsewhere on the continent of Africa. At each stage in this, Putin has continued to reiterate the grievances that he initiated or called our attention to in Munich of 2007. But what he has done lately is he's gone deeper into history. It's 
instructive if you haven't already to go back and take a look at the essay he published in July of 2021 on the unity of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. It was available in English until very recently on the Kremlin.ru website, but that website has been taken down by hackers for the last week or so. So if you don't already have a copy of it, you're going to have to read uh, interpretations of it until that site comes back up, if it ever does. But in that really quite remarkable essay, he, for the first time, sort of publicly in writing, asserts that Ukraine has no history as a nation, that it's an artificial construct of various misinterpretations throughout history, most recently from Putin's perspective in the Soviet era when it was the Ukraine became a Soviet socialist republic. And as such, Putin goes, goes on to talk about Russia's imperial destiny and perhaps thereby his own reflections on his destiny. Let's not forget he's 69 years old. He'll turn 70 in October, which according to the actuarial tables for Russian males, he's long past his time. However fit he professes himself to be and likes to display himself publicly as being. But he's starting to think about his legacy and fulfilling his destiny. And he justifies increasingly his actions on religious or historic grounds. This essay goes back to, I mean, this is extraordinary. He complains about Russian lands that were taken by the, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania in the 15th century. He you know, I'm upset about that stuff. I'm still upset about that stuff, too. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, I got my own beefs, but, you know, I've got my own irredentist ambitions, but I haven't started a war over it recently. And extraordinarily, he justifies the Soviet participation in the partitioning of Poland at the onset of the Second World War as reclaiming, in partnership with Hitler's Germany, by the way, and you might remember the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, but he justifies this as reclaiming lands that have been taken away by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. It's extraordinary. You can go right up to the present day and his recitation of these real or imagined grievances, mostly at the hands of the West on Russia as justification for what he's doing in Ukraine today. Yeah, and this is a common theme with our enemies, and it's something that we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, which is sort of the longer term vision of a lot of foreign countries, which also includes sort of a carrying of longer term grievances forward and sort of the desire to avenge them. But you mentioned the, the 2007 speech before the Munich Security Conference. But on February 21st, I, I think everybody at this point who's listening to this podcast has seen that speech in which he appeared to be sort of honestly rambling. So the question that I have is, we understand why Putin, it links to some, I mean, why Ukraine rather, it links to some ancient grievance that he feels he has to vindicate. We know he is, by Russian terms, I guess, coming to the end, potentially the end of his life and a need to fulfill whatever legacy it is he thinks he has. But the Ukraine attack happened now. And I guess what everybody's asking is understanding he's been carrying this desire for so long. What were the triggering events that led him to act as he did in the last 15 days? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Why now? I mean, there's, there's a few reasons for it, I think. If you want to look at the bigger picture, 
I feel that Zelensky's public and private overtures to the West for membership in the EU, a path towards membership in NATO, which was never realistic before the invasion, you know, it came to Putin's attention. So he's, he's thinking, OK, I've got another leader here in the Ukraine that wants to do what is absolutely unacceptable to me. And that's bring it into the EU and bring it closer, if not into ultimately into NATO. Secondly, Putin, he's a former KGB officer, but he's also a product of Soviet education, Soviet education as an intelligence officer. And they use a couple of phrases, correlation of forces, correlation of means by which to assess your enemies and your capabilities to decide whether the time is right for action. And I think as Putin looked out in the winter of 2021 and beginning of 2022 and saw the situation in the world, he probably felt in his calculation or whatever algorithm he uses in his head that the time was right. What do I mean by that? Well, he Putin looked out at the president of the United States, whom he could listen. I'm completely apolitical in this sense, completely. But in Putin's mind, he sees 79-year-old Joe Biden, who was Obama's deputy, and he sees a, a leader that is not going to use military force against him. I mean, he'll go back. He'll, in Putin's mind, he'll go back to Biden's remarks when Obama was president and decided not to take any military action in Syria after Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons against his own people and cross that proverbial red line. So Putin looks at Biden and says, this guy's not going to do anything. I don't have to worry about him. Putin looks at this, arguably the strongest leader in Europe, Angela Merkel. She's departed the scene. And you've got a new SPD chancellor, Olaf Scholz, you know, the, the chancellor of Germany, who is on public record as not being particularly confrontational with, with Putin or Russia and basically a, an extension of Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik from the 1960s and 70s. Putin looks at Boris Johnson and the party scandal and the UK's decision to pull out of the EU. Putin looks at Macron, for whom he has clearly no respect, and says, this guy's tied up. This guy's got a huge ego and he's tied up in a re-election bid. I don't have to worry about him or France. Macron's arguably most significant political opponent. Marine Le Pen is a Putin fan. And Putin says, you know, I've got, got a weak and divided United States led by, a, in his view, a weak president. I've got a weak and divided Europe that is in more dependent on my energy than it ever has been. Germany shut down its nuclear power plants. There's, Germany has no liquefied natural gas terminals and so on. So he looks across and says, I've got the energy. Europe is politically weak. They're not going to stand up to me when I can control the spigot for the oil. Then Putin will have also continued his assessment of the correlation of force, and he'll look at NATO suffering from rhetorical and practical abuse by Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump. Putin probably assessed it as a hollow shell militarily. No country other than the United States and Canada, by and large through the entire history of NATO since 1947, has lived up to his 2% GDP obligation for defense spending. You can see it's on public record. The United Kingdom says we don't have any anti-submarine ships. The Germans, this is before the invasion, say we, we can't, we don't have enough spare parts to put our air force into the sky. But we'll have looked at that and said they're militarily weak. They can't respond. United States, army, military exhausted from campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on around the world. 
Now's the time. And Putin will have said, I've completed a successful reorganization and modernization of my military. I've demonstrated that I'm a powerful country by my annexation of Crimea, by my success in the war against Republic of Georgia, by my intervention in Syria. I've got a powerful military. I can do this. The Russians even used this term before the invasion, shock and awe. Where have you heard that before? Yeah, yeah. And I would say to add to what you're saying, I believe there was also the reference to their intercontinental hypersonic ballistic missiles. Yeah, he's they were, this advanced weaponry that he's put on display. He says, I, I got it. I, I Now's the time. It's wintertime. So Europe is more dependent than in summertime on the energy that I provide. And frozen ground is really good for armored operations in that part of the world. Yes, so, they have the infrastructure as we, we've definitely talked about that. And one other thing I wanted to mention was that some of our Department of Defense leaders described China's testing of the hypersonic intercontinental ballistic missiles as being a Sputnik moment, which I think could also have been some sort of a, an unintended acknowledgement that perhaps you know, we don't have the capacity to defeat such weapons, which made him think he was holding the ultimate, no pun intended, but Trump card. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to part of your question that I didn't address. So what about Putin's 21st of February speech where he seemed you know, incredibly passionate about this? You know, you, you, you wonder the change in demeanor of Putin and, you know, Condoleezza Rice. You can go down the list of leaders that have had interactions with Putin over the past 20 years. and They say he's changed. I mean, he was always sort of cold, calculating, reserved, and he's become increasingly passionate in the last couple of years in his expression of the grievances that he believes Russia has suffered and the lack of respect shown to Russia by the West, which I think is very unfair characterization. But nonetheless, in Putin's mind, he thinks he's not getting the respect he deserves. Uh, I would point out that the GDP of Russia is less than that of the state of California, but he's got 6,200 nuclear weapons. And Mm -hmm. I think it is also significant and maybe a suggestion that he's not processing information exactly as we would one would hope that a leader of a country as powerful as Russia might. But he, he, you know, two days before the invasion of the Ukraine, he tests Russia's nuclear forces and goes to a bunker outside of Moscow. Ukraine's not a nuclear state. They gave up right. their nuclear weapons uh, as, as a consequence of the Budapest Agreement. And, you know, and Putin's big grievance here is the eastward expansion of NATO. I would point out to you for anybody who cares about such things that he wasn't massing his troops on the borders of Lithuania, Estonia or Latvia or Poland, which are NATO members and former parts of the Soviet Union, or at least the Warsaw Treaty Organization, lining up against Ukraine, a non-NATO, by the way. Well, I will tell you that a lot of people who have immigrated, Washington has a very large Romanian diaspora, as well as, frankly, a lot, a large Ukrainian Russian diaspora. And I think the sort of scuttlebutt in the coffee shops here is Latvia's next. Uh, but I want to go back for a second because Moldova. Um, Moldova, God. OK, pretty place. They had a great James Bond movie that was filmed there. But let's move on. You guys in the CIA, through training and experience and probably the need to survive, you have a gift. You basically become organic personality profilers. You mentioned that he's less stoic. He's less controlled. He wasn't the Putin that we've seen in the past. Other observers have seen some other things that suggest to them that perhaps he's not even well. And I'm not asking you to speculate about that precisely, but he's been described as bloated like people are who receive prednisone treatment when they're immune suppressed. He sat 50 feet from Macron. Some could say that was a sign of his disrespect. Others indicate Macron refused to be COVID tested. And if he has no immunity, 
that distance might have given him some sort of uh, prophylaxis against it. He was twitchy. What, based on your sort of observations of him over the years, you've mentioned that he seems sort of more passionate, more possibly emotional, I think is a fair word here. Is there anything else that you would like to say about what you see in terms of his change? Well, there's certainly a lot of public speculation about his health and his mental health, particularly. I tend to believe that Putin is more calculating than we give him credit for being. It is absolutely true that he has submitted himself to an extraordinary regimen of isolation for the last two and a half years. And the processes through which visitors have to go to get anywhere near him is really quite extraordinary. Walking through tunnels of disinfectants and testing and repeated testing and all that sort of stuff. As the uh, director of Central Intelligence Agency pointed out today in his testimony, the circle of people that have had access to Putin has gotten restricted over the years and more particularly during the last two and a half years. So he's He's not having the opportunity to interact with confident people that can give him contrasting points of view. So he's being reinforced in his, I think, flawed interpretation of history. The guys that are, the guys that are around are these are guys that I know, and they think exactly like Putin does. And they've got the same chip on their shoulder about the eastward expansion of NATO, the collapse of the Soviet Union all that sort of stuff. So he's in this narrow circle of people that think exactly like he does, and they reinforce his views, and he gets increasingly confident. Now, how about his demeanor in the last few weeks or a couple of years? As he's gotten closer to the go date, it was, it was absolutely clear from March of 2014 that the Crimea was just the beginning as far as Ukraine was concerned. There's no way Putin was going to accept the possibility of a free, democratic, and presumably over time, prosperous state on his borders. It was complete anathema to him, to Putin and the guys that are around. Couldn't happen. It's unthinkable. So at some point, he was going to have to finish the job in the Ukraine. As we've gotten closer to his launch date, when he, Putin, felt the correlation of forces and the correlation of means, that means Russia's capability to carry out the occupation of Ukraine. As it got closer to the go date, Putin started to get more passionate about it. And I think what people aren't properly understanding in that in this context is it's also an intimidation tactic that when he sits across the table from Macron, keeps Macron 50 feet away, I mean, it's laughable when he keeps Gerasimov and Shoigu, you know, 50 feet away, his own foreign minister, all this sort of, you know, he he Putin, I think, feels that there's some advantage to presenting to the West the possibility that he's not entirely rational and that that serves as a tactic to once again, to message the West, we need to manage our escalation protocols. We need need to be careful not to provoke this guy because he might be wacky. I mean, he's capable of launching a nuclear weapon. I mean, I think Fiona Hill's remarks last week or the weeks before that Putin's absolutely capable of doing that are spot on. She absolutely knows what she's talking about. Yeah. And let's just can we go back and remind our listeners that Fiona Hill was on the National Security Council and our listeners may remember some of the experiences that she had during the period of time when I believe military support for Ukraine was withheld. If you want to just kind of recap that briefly from your perspective, Rob. Yeah. First of all, I've known Dr. Hill for a long time. I've got tremendous respect for her. She was the national intelligence officer for Russia when I was running Central Eurasian operations for the agency. So we had a lot lot of interaction. I think I might have mentioned on this podcast that for the past 10 years or so, I've been 
part of a third track, if you will, of communications between the United States government and, and the government of the Russian Federation. Quite extraordinary channel, actually sponsored by Harvard University on the U.S. side and the retired officers club in Moscow on the Russian side consists entirely of former very senior CIA and U.S. military officials on the American side and former KGB, GRU and Russian military on the Russian side. It's a very extraordinary channel. It allows us to say things between old Cold War warriors that Secretary of State Blinken could never say to, to Lavrov. I mean, he, Blinken's got to be, you know, he's a Secretary of State, for God's sake. He can't say the things that, that we can say. But Dr. Hill has been kind enough to help us, the American side, prepare for these meetings with the Russians. I think she's an extraordinary national resource. She didn't get along with the previous president, I think, and objected properly, in my view, strongly to Trump's decision to, let's call it, politicize the relationship with Ukraine and at least temporarily withhold military supplies for Ukraine in return for evidence of Joe Biden's malfeasance or Hunter Biden's malfeasance. I don't remember exactly what's because it doesn't matter to me. But the point is, Dr. Hill, who's met Putin a number of times, when she goes on public record as saying Putin is capable of starting nuclear war, that's a, that's somebody worth listening to, in my opinion. I, I can very easily walk you through a scenario about how we could get to that point. Russia integrates the use of theater or low yield nuclear weapons into their military doctrine in a fashion that nobody in the West does. In other words, they say it's entirely legitimate to use a battlefield nuclear weapon to reduce the, the capability of your enemy to resist. It's part of their doctrine. I mean, they train like that. I mean, it's unthinkable for the United States or any Western country. You got to go all the way up to the president of the United States. A theater commander in Russia has a lot more latitude in the Russian military to use a military to nuclear weapon than anybody in the West. That's not to say you can just blast it off when you feel like it. There are protocols that you have to go through, but it's integrated in their doctrine in a way that, that it's not in the West. So when, when I look at uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov's comments last week that the West is engaging in economic warfare on Russia, through this massive sanctions. And then, it, then Lavrov says, and you know, often if you look at history, economic warfare leads to real warfare. So you have that piece of it. Secondly, I think one of the miscalculations that Putin made was in preparing for this invasion was the degree to which the West was going to be willing to provide armaments to the government of Ukraine. The Javelin anti-tank weapons, Stinger uh, anti-aircraft missiles are capable. They're serious weapons. And the West has provided, what, 17,000 Javelin missiles to the Ukraine in the past couple of weeks? I, I, mean, I don't know exactly what the number is, but a lot. And it's had a real battlefield impact. But we're in a situation now where you know, Russian casualties are, depending upon whose numbers you believe, but according to estimates of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, are starting to approach the, the number of casualties that Russia, Russia suffered in 10 years in Afghanistan. It's starting to be a real factor. So if I'm Grasimov, the chief of the Russian general staff, or I'm Shoigu, the minister of defense, and I go into Vladimir Putin, I say, Mr. President, we have faced a situation now where our special military operation is no longer proceeding on schedule. And it's not proceeding on a long schedule because of the level of support that NATO has provided to the Ukraine. It's clear from the NATO's decision to provide these weapons that our deterrent no longer works. We are a powerful nuclear country. We are the most powerful nuclear country on the planet. 
6,200 plus nuclear weapons, yet our deterrence doesn't work. NATO is still providing arms to the Ukraine. Those arms are being used to kill Russian soldiers and destroy Russian equipment and to support the Nazi regime in the Ukraine. Mr. President, the only way we can restore our deterrent is if we allow our commanders to use a theater nuclear weapon to change the dynamic. You can be confident, Mr. President, that the West will not respond in kind and we will not escalate to mutual assured destruction. Mr. President, I want permission to use a weapon. That conversation could happen. We'll be airing part two of this interview featuring Rob Dannenberg on Monday, March 14th. Stay tuned. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.